Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast that covers brand new movies out in theaters. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can find the link to that at my website, Quipster.net. Today, we're in part four of this six-part series, looking at the first six of the Star Trek films. This one is set, of course, in the 1980s. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. It's a PG-rated film. It does have some language and mild violence. The runtime is an hour and 58 minutes. The cast includes William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, Catherine Hicks, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, George Takei, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols, Jane Wyatt, and Mark Leonard. The director is Leonard Nimoy, and the screenplay credited to Steve Meerson, Peter Crikes, Harv Bennett, and Nicholas Meyer. Now, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, it starts with our heroes. They're on planet Vulcan. They're loading up to go home. They know they're going to face punishment from the Federation for their hijacking of the Enterprise. We saw that in Star Trek III, as well as its subsequent destruction. Not to mention the sabotage of the Excelsior, the other starship that was chasing them. As they approach Earth, they find that there's a giant space probe, and it's threatening to destroy the planet. It's emitting the signal to which those people on Earth are baffled on how they're going to respond to it. They determine that the probe is sending messages in the language of humpback whales. But the problem is, humpback whales have been extinct on Earth for over 200 years, With seemingly no obvious solution as to how to respond, Kirk and crew decide that they're going to use their Klingon bird of prey starship to time warp back to the late 20th century in order to snatch a couple of humpbacks and bring them back with the hopes of saving their timeline of Earth. They discover that there are two whales that are in captivity. They're at the Bay Area Cetacean Institute. Still, they only have a limited amount of time to figure out how to transport these whales and to put them in tons of seawater and get them to the future. So to get close, they need the help of a Cetacean Institute expert. Her name is Dr. Jillian Taylor, played by Katherine Hicks. And they're also going to need to find nuclear vessels and harvest enough atomic energy to send their tapped-out ship back into the future. Much more to the story than that, but that's the basic premise. It's pretty much a breath of fresh air, I think, in the Star Trek movie series. It's the lightest of the films in terms of tone. 
It also rounds out the trilogy, which started back with Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, although this has a decidedly different vibe to it than that. That one was more deadly serious. And while it does continue three months after Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, it is still, I think, very accessible. If you only have a passing familiarity with the television series, but you have not seen the previous films, I think you're still going to get some mileage out of Star Trek IV. What sets it apart from the other Star Trek adventures, whether the movies or the television show, is this ingenious idea that's behind the story. It really boldly goes where no other has gone before. It does have a heartfelt ecological message and a thoroughly entertaining premise and execution. It really should not have worked. I mean, this is a very ambitious film, but it still does, and it does wonderfully at that. Now, the kickoff to the making of Star Trek IV, it started back with Paramount's announcement. Just a few weeks after the release of Star Trek III, into theaters, they were negotiating with Leonard Nimoy. They wanted him to return to direct the fourth entry in the cinematic Star Trek series. Back then, Nimoy and the producer, Harv Bennett, decided that the next movie should be much lighter in tone than the darker one that was experienced in The Search for Spock. Now, to date, this is the only Star Trek film in which no one dies, unless you count the whales who are being harvested for their blubber in this video that's shown at the Cetacean Institute. It's also the first to contain stronger language, and that supplies some potent and some very humorous commentary on dialogue in the 20th century culture. Now, one goal of Star Trek IV was to tie up Star Trek III's loose ends and to return the film series into a kind of status quo for future entries. For Star Trek IV, the franchise, after two movies done in the television wing of the studio, it now is done by the motion picture wing. Originally, it was done by the TV studio to keep costs down, but because they knew that it was going to be at least a solid hit, they decided to move forward with it. Harv Bennett came up with a top 10 favorite Star Trek episodes list from which to get ideas from, and it pretty much coincided with what many fans considered to be the cream of the crop as well. So so he looked at the elements of what people enjoyed about those episodes. He found that there were a couple of time travel episodes that were a particular delight for him and for fans, specifically City on the Edge of Forever. That was considered one of the top Star Trek episodes of all time, and that really turned on the light bulb in their heads that the next film should probably have the crew go back in time. And the method to achieve time travel comes from the episode called Tomorrow is Yesterday, and that's where the Enterprise slingshots around a star, and it sends the Enterprise back to the 1960s. After they discussed what era they wanted to shoot the film in, they felt that the modern day seemed to work best. They would set it in the home base of what would be the Federation in the future, San Francisco. This is a city where their futuristic uniforms might not seem out of place, so it very much was in keeping there. The modern setting provides some pretty choice fish-out-of-water moments and the satirical commentary on the so-called primitive and paranoid culture of contemporary society. Now, as Nimoy was on another project, he was performing in this NBC miniseries in Europe. It was of Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. There he came up with this outline during this in-person meeting with Harv Bennett in August of 1984. He ended up consulting with professors at MIT and Harvard and the University of California and Santa Cruz, especially their SETI division, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Topics that he discussed with these professors included theories related to extraterrestrial probabilities, the difficulty of communicating with these aliens, and how civilizations might connect across distances in space that might take eons to traverse. 
There was inspiration here for Nimoy on centering the film around conservation. It came from this 1984 book he was reading by a Harvard professor named Edward O. Wilson. It was called Biophilia, and it was about the many species of animals and plants that are set to go extinct and what their loss might mean eventually to the future of humankind. As Nimoy began to contemplate what the loss of millions of species might mean for Earth's future, he decided he was going to base the plot of the film on the need to save a species that was predicted to be extinct within three centuries, namely the humpback whale. In addition to fitting in nicely with the San Francisco setting, Nimoy decided to choose the humpback whale because of its size and its grace, and especially for its distinctive and sophisticated use of songs to communicate. The crew would come back to Earth's past to get a pair of humpback whales that are needed to sing their song to this alien civilization who are trying to communicate with this highly intelligent Earth species. Nimoy was inspired by this idea due to a favorite Ray Bradbury story that he had read called The Foghorn. And in that story, there's a sea monster that's attracted to the sound of a lighthouse's foghorn because that foghorn happens to sound like itself and he thinks that it's going to be another creature like him, the sea monster ends up destroying the tower when the men inside end up turning off that foghorn. And that was kind of the kernel of the idea here with the space probe. That story was adapted into a movie before. It was called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It came out in the 1950s. And now still the concept here seems pretty new and fresh in the context of a Star Trek adventure, except with this alien race possibly destroying Earth with a powerful probe to search the oceans when the songs of the whales that sounded like their language ended up stopping. Harv Bennett was less hands-on with the script this time. He assigned the duties to this inexperienced writing team of Steve Meerson and Peter Kreiks. Paramount liked the story idea, but not any of their scripts. The one hindrance, and this is kind of a novel thing here, it had to do with them trying to incorporate a role for renowned Trekkie, Eddie Murphy. Yes, Eddie Murphy, the superstar comedian and actor. Murphy had, during a dinner, he had told Jeffrey Katzenberg, the former president of production for Paramount, that he would kill to be in a Star Trek movie as part of his multi-picture deal with the studio. Nimoy was told about this and he said, well, well, let's see what happens. He went to Eddie Murphy's new palatial home in Hollywood Hills. He was very interested in figuring out a way to get Murphy on board, but he was still cautious about making a poor choice by having him there just for having him. Murphy's involvement could be a box office boon, but it could also backfire for both the Star Trek franchise as well as Murphy's new skyrocketing career if it was not done well. The Trekkers also began criticizing the casting of Murphy as potentially derailing the series, kind of in the way that casting Richard Pryor in Superman 3 did for the Superman franchise. So Nimoy and Bennett and the screenwriters, they explored for weeks how a character for Eddie Murphy might fit in with the story that they were planning. Murphy thought that he could play some sort of officer in Starfleet or do Star Trek things, but there was really no place in the screenplay for that to happen unless it was a cameo, because Starfleet was really only at the very beginning and the very end of the film. So they ended up toying with ideas of making him some sort of comical 1980s-based college professor or a con artist or some sort of conspiracy theorist or even just playing himself in a comic relief version of his personality. They combined some of these ideas and they ended up making this character the host of a very popular late-night talk show that explored psychic phenomena, and that would include interactions with aliens and UFOs. And his character would spend the film trying to prove that he was right, that the Enterprise crew 
is from outer space and he is going to out them for his show. Now, no one was pretty keen on this needless story angle. They felt that the message of the movie might be lost and that the character played by Eddie Murphy might come off as unlikable, kind of like Eugene Levy did in Splash. So they ended up redrafting this. They had a draft in which Eddie Murphy becomes an astrophysicist at Berkeley that has to be consulted by a couple of the Enterprise crew when they split off. And Murphy ended up declining the role in the end because he said he wanted to do The Golden Child instead. He felt that that would actually be a better move for his career. If you know Murphy and you know The Golden Child was kind of a step down from Beverly Hills Cop, you know that he regretted that decision ever since. Now, there was another major snag for the production, and that involved William Shatner holding out for more money. He demanded a salary of $2 million and 10% of the profits to return. Now, that would actually be doubled because Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner had a so-called favored nations clause in their contracts. It guaranteed that they both would receive equal terms for any movies that they did within the Star Trek franchise. So Shatner, he was upset that Paramount passed him over to direct Star Trek IV because Leonard Nimoy had just directed Star Trek III. He should be the one to do it next. So Paramount CEO Barry Diller, he refused to meet with Shatner. He thought he was asking for too much, and that ended up putting the project in jeopardy of moving forward. There were rumors at that time. They were circulating. Star Trek fanzines, they were all talking about Paramount might ditch the original cast. They might hire younger actors to portray the core Enterprise crew, and that was going to be in their early days in Starfleet. It was going to be a prequel series. And indeed, Harv Bennett did actually follow a plan B in case things didn't work out with Shatner. He was going to tentatively name it Starfleet Academy, and Paramount actually ended up using this as leverage to try to pressure William Shatner in the negotiations when things were at an impasse, and that gave the rest of the crew pause that everyone could be expendable if they ended up asking for too much money. Discussions ended up resuming with William Shatner after Frank Mancuso and Ned Tannen took over at the studio. They gave Nimoy the green light to proceed with the film, even though they had not settled with Shatner yet. And after five months of negotiations, Paramount ended up finally striking a deal with William Shatner to give him increased pay and consideration for directing and being the executive producer for Star Trek V. However, it did take so long to come up with this deal. In the meantime, CBS ended up picking up the canceled television show T.J. Hooker from ABC. And so Shatner was obligated to do one more season. And so they would have to wait for him to complete shooting for that before they could get with the film. So after they did some additional drafts with Mearson and Crikes that the studio did not like at all, Leonard Nimoy and Harv Bennett decided that they needed to bring in someone with a fresh approach. And so enter Nicholas Meyer. He directed and did uncredited work for the final script for Star Trek II. He came in late in 1985 to help with his new script. He was going to base it on the existing plot concepts that the studio could accept. But there was very little time before they wanted to start shooting, so Meyer suggested that they split up the screenwriting chores. Meyer would handle the middle act of the film where the comedy comes into play regarding the Enterprise crew going back to the 20th century. He did question the need for a San Francisco setting because he actually had already done a time travel flick where they go back to San Francisco in 1979 for his film Time After Time. So he ended up having some similarities with the narrative and the characters between his two films because they kind of cover the same ground here. Now, Harv Bennett was assigned to revise the first and the third acts set in space while Nimoy and Shatner had final approval rights and they would help revise the scenes involving Spock and 
Kirk, respectively, at least their dialogue and how they would act. And during this phase, they morphed the remnants of the astrophysicist character that was originally written for Eddie Murphy, along with this other role that they had for a female reporter. They put those together into a new character of a marine biologist and a potential love interest for James T. Kirk. Her name was Dr. Jillian Taylor. The studio execs loved the new script when it was all said and done, and the production at that point was a go. Now, as far as casting goes, Nimoy wanted to bring back some of that old Star Trek flair, and for fans of the TV series, there would be a return of some members from the original show from the 1960s, albeit in smaller roles. You had Mark Leonard here. He actually was in Star Trek III. He played Spock's father, Sarek. He was also on the original show with that role, as well as a couple of other roles. Jane Wyatt, who played Spock's mother on the original TV show, Amanda Grayson, she was on the episode Journey to Babel. She played alongside Leonard, and she does make a brief but significant appearance here. Majel Barrett, Gene uh, Roddenberry's wife, she returned turns to her recurring role as Christine Chapel and also Grace Lee Whitney. She appeared several times on the show as yeoman Janice Rand. She's also back in this film. Not everything made the final cut, though. Some fans may be disappointed to see that there's the relative newcomer Lieutenant Savick, played by Robin Curtis in this film. She does not join the crew on their adventure this time out. She has one brief moment of drama not afforded in Star Trek III to address the death of Kirk's son, David. And that's before she decides to stay on planet Vulcan for medical reasons. Actually, earlier drafts of the script had Savick's medical reasons as a pregnancy. She was pregnant with Spock's child after performing performing Ponfar in Star Trek 3, but they decided to keep it unmentioned for the purpose of this film, so we just don't know exactly why she's staying behind. Majel Barrett's scenes mostly ended up on the cutting room floor, much to her chagrin. There was also a scene that did not get shot where Sulu is supposed to meet a great-great ancestor in San Francisco, but the child actor that they had hired to play that ancestor grew despondent and uncooperative. And after spending most of the day shoot trying to get the kid to come around and actually perform, they ended up running out of time and they had nothing to show for it. And so that angle was scrapped. Paramount increased the budget of Star Trek IV from its prior efforts to $18 million, although the final cost would end up running about $23 million. After its window for a summer release for 1986 ended up not going to work, Paramount slated it to be released a week before Christmas. However, they ended up changing their minds again. They moved it up to the Thanksgiving holiday weekend to make way for Eddie Murphy's comedy, The Golden Child, for the Christmas period slot. Along with some of the new ideas and some of the new cast, there was a veteran composer named Leonard Rosenman brought in for the score. He was a longtime friend of Leonard Nimoy. He crafted this very jaunty score here. He adds some contemporary jazz pieces to the traditional orchestral scoring. Industrial Light and Magic, they do return for the visual effects here. And when the release schedule was moved up a few weeks, some problems ended up emerging because ILM had spent so much time completing their effects work on Howard the Duck, they did not know if they would have enough time to meet the release date to handle all the special effects, but they actually did manage to resolve this to paramount satisfaction. The space probe that's used in this film, it looks mostly like this giant metallic tube in space. It was reportedly, the rumor is that it was a prop that was laying around at Paramount Studios. It was built for this aborted adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama. The whales are a mix of real whale footage and also some radio-controlled and robotic portions of the parts of the whales for use when they're in tanks or near humans because 
Unlike killer whales, humpbacks are not really trainable to perform on cue. Now, some viewers might dismiss the voyage home as maybe too slight to consider a truly substantial Star Trek outing to make it their favorite, but I think that's kind of a misguided conclusion if you're looking at it just as a comedy. It is the funniest of the series, to be sure, but I don't think it's a pure comedy at all. It's a real Star Trek adventure. It does have some moments of seriousness within it, except that the creators knew well enough to know that the plot really could not play always seriously or that people would probably laugh at it, not in a right way here. It's one of the smartest Star Trek stories ever created, in my opinion. It has a perfect sense of the characters, and it has some scenes that are easily some of the best in the series history. Now, I'm not alone in thinking that. Star Trek IV ended up being the biggest hit in the Star Trek franchise of all the Star Trek films featuring the original cast. It raked in $109 million in the United States alone off of its $23 million budget. That $23 million budget, by the way, is the exact amount it took in its international take. It was enough to land it as the fifth highest grossing film of 1986, and it was the number one film in the United States for its first two weeks of release, and following that, it had a run of five straight weeks at number two. It was right behind the film that Eddie Murphy abandoned his role in this film to do, The Golden Child, and it remained in the top ten for 11 consecutive weeks. It even took in more money than The Golden Child when it was all said and done. Not only was it a commercial hit, but it also scored well with the critics. Critics enjoyed seeing a film unlike one that they had seen before, and they praised the use of all the characters in their most appealing light to date. The film would also receive four Academy Award nominations for its cinematography, for Leonard Rosenman's score, for sound and sound design as well. And due to its ecological message on behalf of the humpback whales, the film was also praised by conservation groups like Greenpeace and the American Cetacean Society. And upon its release on home video in 1987, RKO Warner announced that it would donate $1 from each sale to the Animal Welfare Institute's Save the Whales campaign. Further continuing the conservation vibe, Leonard Nimoy ended up providing the voiceover narration. He read poems and prose from famous authors for this album of humpback whale songs called Whales Alive. It features whale sounds that were used for the film, and the proceeds for Whales Alive went to the World Wildlife Fund. So it really was kind of a boon for the message of the film. For the purpose of keeping it light, there was a conscious decision on the part of Nimoy and the rest to not have a discernible enemy. They wanted to return the series out of the dark and violent path trend of the previous movies. And while it does have an overt message, I think the use of it is so outlandish that it ends up being part of the overall fun. It's a message movie, but it has that spoonful of sugar to help that medicine go down. It's never heavy-handed in the approach, and I think it's one of the best Star Trek films in the minds of many viewers, and I will say it is my personal favorite. The success of Star Trek IV, not only at the box office, would inspire Paramount to be much more bold with the Star Trek franchise. It really sent a message to the studio to think broader for Star Trek as a property, as a big franchise. It not only continued the film series, but its success ended up helping bring back a weekly Star Trek series to television. Now that the television division of the studio were no longer required to make the movies, they started to have discussions. They were going to bring a new series, and it was going to debut in the March of 1987 on the soon-to-launch Fox 
television network. It was then run by former Paramount head Barry Diller, who really ended up cultivating the Star Trek movies. And this TV show would be the prequel idea showing the Enterprise characters' origins in Starfleet Academy. So William Shatner signing on not only ended up making Star Trek IV happen with the original cast, but it also allowed Starfleet Academy to find its life. However, Paramount worried that a TV series might lessen the interest in their lucrative movie franchise, as well as the appetite for the original TV show that was still showing in many markets around the world in syndication. So Roddenberry began to work on a different idea. He didn't want to overuse the characters of the Enterprise. They were going to feature an all-new cast of characters, and it was going to be set a century ahead of the ones from the original series. He dubbed it Star Trek The Next Generation. And Paramount decided that it would be much more lucrative for them to put the program directly into syndication and sell it to the independent stations they already had relationships with for the original series reruns, and they would have better creative control over the series by doing it this way as well. The Next Generation, it made its debut in September of 1987, and it ran for seven successful seasons, eventually continuing the movie franchise after the Star Trek original series of films for four more feature films. So so Star Trek IV really was the platform that set the table for all of the future Star Trek movies and television shows as well. So you can thank its success for that, and I think well-earned because I'm giving Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, four stars out of four. Four stars means that this is a film I would recommend to everybody, whether you're a huge Star Trek fan or just a passing fan or you just have kind of a sort of a familiarity, even if this was your first exposure to that, as long as you kind of get the gist of what Star Trek is, I think you'll have an entertaining time watching this. Four stars out of four for Star Trek Four. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on Star Trek Four or really any of the Star Trek movie series that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. Net. You can find links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page there, my Instagram, or just write to me through email. You can do that through my website, quipster.net. As far as what I'm going to cover next week, of course, we're going to continue on with this series with the final film that was done in the 1980s. It is called Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And yes, it was directed by William Shatner as negotiated. So this is a film that is often considered the lesser of all the Star Trek original cast films. As far as whether it stands up today, I don't know. I haven't seen that in a while, so we will see if maybe I'm going to give it another chance seeing it in the context of not only the film series, but also the 80s films. And maybe I just might find some redeeming qualities to talk about for next week. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Check that out before the next episode. And thanks for joining me on this trip around the world. Whether you're in the 20th century or the 21st or the 23rd in 80s movies. Mm-hmm.